All right, Wild Oak Living. This is Johanna Wild Oak. Welcome to Wild Oak Living. We're going to go straight to the program. I'm, we're going to be a bit philosophical today. I'm going to start out by um, sharing with you again a, a kind of a short interview I did a few months ago with Andrew Fiala about tyrants and tyrants is is one of the subjects and and how how do you know how do tyrants tyrants become tyrants and and how are they allowed to to operate and what is the history and also some some suggestions that he has about how that could change in the future and then i'm going to share with you some more thoughts by andrew fiala who is a i'm going to tell you more about him in a moment and then in the second part of the program or maybe the last third of the program we're going to be talking about gratefulness i'm going to share with you some thoughts from david steindl rost who is a uh a monk and he has some really some really inspiring and uplifting thoughts about the whole topic of um, being grateful and I'm going to share that with you as well so let's start out by talking about tyrants and my uh, the guest that I had uh, earlier this year who was on Wild Oak Living Andrew Fiala uh, has uh, a book out about that topic and he will talk about that book and I will interview him about that book in a moment but let me give you a little bit of background uh, Andrew Fiala PhD is an expert on ethics and political philosophy he's the author or editor of more than a dozen books and more than 50 scholarly articles he has published hundreds of op-ed essays and newspaper columns Fiala is professor of philosophy and director of the ethics center at Fresno State he gives frequent public lectures on topics related to ethics ethical decision-making, ethical leadership, peace, politics, and religion. Fiala is also the past president of Concerned Philosophers for Peace. He is an internationally respected expert on the philosophy of peace, nonviolence, and pacifism, and a strong advocate for civility, religious liberty, and freedom of thought. So let's go back and listen to this uh, short interview I did with Andrew Fiala earlier this year, broadcast here on Wild Oak Living. If you heard it before, I think it's going to be interesting to hear it again with the perspective of everything that's happened in the world in the last few months. And if you haven't heard it before, I hope you enjoy it. This is Johanna Weldock and coming up, Wild Oak Living. Today we're going to be talking about tyrants and we're going to give you an update about, about how to, uh, in one of the communities in, in western Ukraine. He's written a number of, uh, of books, including a widely used ethics textbook called Ethics, Theory and Contemporary Issues, 9th edition. Today we're going to be talking about his most recent book called Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Fools, Sycophants and Citizens. And I want to let you know before we even get into the conversation that uh, this is a very important and very fascinating book and this, this is actually more than a discussion in the time frame that we have today so I'm hoping that I can motivate Professor Fiala to come back on a future program to talk in more detail about the book because today I really want to focus a lot of time on on the, the whole concept of, of pacifism and nonviolent resistance in, in the context of what's happening in Ukraine but let's talk just a bit about uh, to give people a flavor of the book um, and so that maybe people can get it and read it before our next program and get more out of our future discussion. Um, please talk to us a, a bit about um, what motivated you to write this book and, and 
Why is it important? Yeah, hi. Good morning, Good Johanna. Morning. Thank you for having me on. Um, well, you know, the, the book, I, I, I've been writing that, that book for about five years since um, Donald Trump first appeared on the scene. And so I was fascinated to watch this man rise to power. And as I watched Trump in action, I was reminded of all kinds of other people I know who are sort of like him. <laughs> so I was thinking about um, kind of bullies and uh, prideful, egoistic kind of people. And the word tyrant kept showing up in that conversation. So I was, I was fascinated to think about Trump as a, as a character type, as a kind of person. And I think we have a lot of people like Trump in our lives that are, you know, sort of inflated sense of self and um, kind of unscrupulous and willing to do whatever it takes to, to get power. And so, I, you know, I, I was thinking about that problem with the Trump example in mind, but I'm really thinking about this as a spiritual problem that we all confront in our lives, in our businesses, in our families, and so on. And and it, it, this is probably this is probably um, uh, sort of jumping to conclusions, but you know, I was fascinated by the conclusion that you offered about how do we deal with tyrants and and is it, you know look in the mirror. So I, I think the, the fact the fact that you just mentioned that you know not only are there tyrants uh, or tyrannical behavior everywhere, but probably most of us had at some point in our lives exhibited tyrannical behavior. Oh yeah, yeah, no, and you know, I, like I would argue, there's a kind of little tyrant within, and if you grow up and educate yourself, eventually you learn how to you know put him in the closet, like <laughs> keep him out of the way, you know. But we all have this tendency. Um, and we know people like this in our families, in our in our workplaces. You know, the, the an example that comes to mind is the schoolyard bully. You know, this is the kid who pushes everyone else around. And the, the really strange thing about that phenomenon is the bully, the tyrant, is facilitated by other players in on the school schoolyard. Right? He has his his suck ups, his um, you know his little gang, his clique of, of folks that cheer him on, and then the mob in the background who just is fascinated by power and really fascinated by violence to connect it back to that theme you were talking about earlier that you know something about tyranny is very close to violence in fact you know the in the scholarship on this when when plato and others talk about the tyrant it's like the tyrant and violence those things just those two things go together um and we're kind of weirdly fascinated by that again all of us are including you know philosophy professors you know there's there's sometimes i put on a a violent movie, a superhero movie, and I just laugh along and cheer along with everyone else. Um, it's part of human nature, our fascination with power and, and our tendency towards violence. And in that way, violence becomes not just an enabler for tyrants, but a tool for tyrants. Oh, yeah, totally. So the, the tyrant um, rises to power using violence, and then once he is in power, and it's almost always a he, uh, then unleashes violence. Strange on. how that's almost always a he. <laughs> yeah, it, there's something there about, about gender and our, our constructions of uh, gender identity. I think, you know, men are encouraged a little bit to be more tyrannical in a sense. Um, I don't want to say that all men are tyrants, but, yeah. um, you know, we, look, we need to learn better. <laughs> yeah. we, need to, we need to control that tendency. 
Well, I, there's so much in your book about uh, about the history, you know, going all the way back to the Greeks. Um, there's there's there are, there's just these fascinating aspects and, and discussions about how we enable tyrants, and then also I I really want to get into how the Constitution helps protect us if we you know if we use it correctly, and and so that's why I want to you know I want to have another longer discussion with you about your fascinating and important book and I just want to bring it to people's attention right now by letting you know that uh, I, again I am talking with Professor Andrew Fiala and his last name is spelled F-I-A-L-A F-I-A-L-A and the book is called Tyranny from Plato to Trump and if we can make it happen I would love to have a future program where we can get into more details ab about about your book. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Thank you. Uh, and so let's let's uh, let's move on to well it's actually not moving on but it's all it's all related <laughs> it's all um this whole uh question about the russian invasion in ukraine and does nonviolent resistance have a role to play and and you shared with me a uh, a paper that that talks about that uh, about how in a world of rattling sabers the option of nonviolent resistance is often ignored as russian tanks roll into ukraine and cluster bombs rain on residential areas is it is natural to think that violence is the only credible response but violence is not our only powerful tool you argue and so i just would like maybe to have you take us through these points about um how nonviolent resistance has played an important role in the past and and how it can play an important role again and especially the the, the aspect of personal responsibility yeah you know th this uh, thank you for for inviting me to talk about this topic it's um it's very complicated obviously yeah. and we need to be careful in thinking this through but right off the bat, let, let me just remind people that nonviolence doesn't mean doing nothing. <laughs> so there's there's an assumption that that the the advocate of nonviolence just says there's nothing we can do. I'm not going to act at all. It turns out that there is lots of techniques and strategies that are nonviolent that can in fact be effective. Um, so there's a weird either or between the do nothing or you know send in the tanks kind of thing. Among the, among the things that can be done, you know, the active nonviolence stuff involves sanctions. We've been talking a lot about that in our country, right? Not a nonviolent response involves economic embargoes, um, choices made about what we buy and who we sell to and so on. There's also strategies of non-cooperation, um, including, uh, you know, work stoppages, work slowdowns and so on. There's a long history of thinking about strategic nonviolence that connects to the work of Martin Luther King Jr. and behind him, Mohandas Gandhi in India, and a bunch of other folks who really have honed these techniques. So there's, there's a lot to be learned there. Um, now, let me, let me be a little bit careful about this, too, is I would never want to say that the people in Ukraine are doing the wrong thing in defending their homeland. I think that's just none of our business, right? It, I mean, when the tanks roll into your streets, I mean, everything's on the table and, and things are very weird. And it's just, to me, it's just admirable how people stood up. Everyone stood up, you know, not just yeah. the army, but everyone stood up all the way to the grandmother who offered sunflower seeds to the Russian soldiers so the flowers could grow out of his body when he died. You know, so, I mean, this, it's just, every time I think about it, it moves me to tears how a whole country stood up. 
Yes, it's it's powerful, and um, and and we don't want to. We can't judge them in their emergency that they're in right now. It's it's not our business to judge. So two things come to mind. One is, uh, you know, there are strategies of nonviolence that Ukrainians themselves could be employing. They they need to figure that out for themselves. Another point I'd like to make is that it's actually the Russian people who have an obligation to do something nonviolently. Right. It's 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 not the the victim of aggression. That's not the focal point. The focal point is the aggressor. Something ought to happen in Russian society that that stops the tanks in their tracks. Right. Um, and we know there have been lots of non uh, lots of uh, anti-war protesters in in Russia who have been rounded up and imprisoned. So one of the things I would ask your listeners to think about if we want to support nonviolence in this uh in this terrible tragedy one thing we could do is support the anti-war protesters in russia they need our support they need our solidarity um now big question this connects back to the tyranny question and will would nonviolence work in russia if the russian people were to rise up against putin somehow well that's a tricky question <laughs> you know we need a lot more information there but there is evidence that there can be nonviolent revolutions even against tyrannical regimes, right? The, there, there are these moments in history where the Berlin Wall comes down, not as a result of bombs falling, but as a, re, as a result of, of human activity, solidarity, and, and nonviolent movements. So and protests. I think the focal point is to talk, to talk about the Russians and encourage them and support them. You also talk about the role of solidarity in protest. You just mentioned it. You know how uh, we've we've seen protests in and and actions in solidarity for Ukraine all over the world. And and you talk about how important that is to make people f who are in that situation, in that violent situation, feel supported. Oh yeah. So think about, for example, if you are. Uh, I mean, we know Amnesty International does this kind of work, right? If you are someone who is imprisoned as a result of a nonviolent protest you need to know that the world has not forgotten you right the the the, the sacrifice that that those folks would make the nonviolent protesters needs to be recognized and celebrated and we need to express our solidarity with those folks this goes across the globe right because we know that this this has been happening for hundreds of years it continues to happen in all all kinds of conflict zones including in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Northern Ireland, et cetera, et cetera. There are some people who put their lives on the line. They, they go on hunger strike, they refuse to work, they speak out in public, and they end up in prison, they lose their jobs, um, and sometimes they're killed. Those people need our support, I think. I think we should also think, Johanna, <clears throat> um, what's our um, attitude, what should our attitude be towards refugees and folks who are trying to flee the conflict zone Both the Ukrainian refugees, we know there's millions of them, them. And what about Russians who are fleeing their homeland because of the oppressive regime that's happening in Russia? There's horrifying stories all around on, on all sides there. And I think one thing nonviolently we can do as Americans is find a way to support those refugees in their time of need. Yeah, and, and, and be careful not to put, you know, all all people into one box, right? I mean, as as you said, there are people protesting in Russia and there are people leaving Russia either in protest or because they are afraid for their lives. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and also I'd like to just throw in <laughs> this is this sounds very weird. It's kind of a philosophy professor thing to say, 
But truth matters in all of this. So one of the most obvious things that 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 nonviolent uh, response needs to focus on is getting the truth out, telling the truth, speaking the truth. There is in in time of war this saying about the fog of war. There's all kinds of misinformation and disinformation and confusion. And the truth actually can cut through a lot of that. And some of our the history of conflict in the world involves terrible lies that are told and reiterated at the expense of, of victims. Uh, you know, the, the kind of lies that were the anti-Semitic lies that were told in the middle of the 20th century, the lies that were told about Japanese Americans in our own country during the Second World War. Um, we, we have an obligation to speak the truth. The lies and, about slavery. Yeah, lies about slavery and so on. We, we, the, the part of the problem we know in Russia is that the Russian people are getting misinformation and disinformation from Russian propaganda mechanisms. So to find a way t- so that Russians can actually hear the truth, I think, is a very important part of the story. And one of the things you also mentioned is the role of religion, how religion um, is has both in history been a promoter of violence, but how religion and, and even secular, you know, a, a secular commitment to the truth uh, can can help in situations like this. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, one thing is that has, has me concerned, and I'm not a real expert on the Russian Orthodox Church, <laughs> but from some reading and some outside, um, you know, my interest in this, I'm worried that the Russian Orthodox Church is being co-opted by the Russian regime. Um, in my opinion, the, the church should be speaking out against aggression, Uh, you know, Pope Francis and others have actually made this point recently. Um, we, we, one would hope that, that religious organizations would be united around the globe in saying that aggressive violence is just not justifiable. Pope Francis has even taken, you know, this to the next step where, you know, in recent weeks he's suggested that there is no such thing as a just war. He's gone so far as to suggest that, which is quite interesting. Um, But there's a tendency of religion to accommodate power. We know this happened in the Nazi time. Pope Pius during the Nazi time, right? Yes, exactly. It's it's a problem. So, again, what can we do? Well, we can encourage our religious friends and brothers and sisters to speak the truth again and to hold fast to the teachings of ethics. I mean, the teachings of Jesus, in my opinion, are really about nonviolence. You know, it, it never hurts to say that one more time, you know, to, to remind people. That read the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> yes, exactly. You wanted to, I, I just want to read two paragraphs from this paper that you write about nonviolence, the role of nonviolence, because this is just so compelling. So you write, perhaps it's easier to imagine sending arms and troops than it is to imagine driving less, paying more for gas, or shifting away from fossil fuels. This lack of imagination is part of a larger problem. problem. Self-interest is often combined with faith in military power in defense of the status quo as outrage mounts we ought to talk uh, to ask ourselves how much we would be willing to sacrifice in the name of peace is it it is one thing to encourage ukrainians to take up arms it is another thing to for comfortable bystanders like the rest of us to consider what we would be willing to sacrifice in the name of peace that's a very powerful question yeah Yeah, thank you for for bringing this up. Um, You know, uh, 
there's a tendency of those of us in the comfortable West to send a couple dollars here and there and say, okay, we've done our part. I do it too. You know, it's just human nature. And then we go back about our business, you know. Um, really, the, the problem on Earth is a system problem. We have massive armies and nuclear weapons and a system based on militarism. Um, could we imagine an alternative to that system? That's the real challenge, I think, for our humanity. And what would we be willing to give up? Or how could we imagine changing our lives if we wanted to produce or create that new, that new reality? Um, you know, this issue about Russian oil and Russian gas, uh, the Europeans have been struggling with this. You know, are they willing to cut off the, the Russian energy? Um, and if, if, the, if they decide yes, because peace is worth it, uh, the end of the war is worth it, they're going to have to consider changing the way they live. And that's a serious uh, question. And often I think we need to dig deeper, in other words, right? It's, it's not just about can we send a couple bucks here and there. It's about can we change the way we exist? <laughs> Easy for philosophy professors to talk about that. But that's the, that's the big question. Is For 2,500 years, philosophers have been asking us to think deeply about who we are, what we stand for, and how we live. And I think it's, it's important these days. Yeah. Where could people uh, get in to find out more about your book? Do you have a website that you could share with us? Yes, yeah, so you can find this on Amazon.com. Um, the, the title of the book is Tyranny from Plato to Trump. And I'm online on AndrewFiala.com. Um, I write a weekly blog for a, a venue called Only Sky. I also write a column in Fresno Bee. Um, I'd be glad for folks to find me online. And again, Andrew's name is spelled F-I-A-L-A, Fiala, F-I-A-L-A. So it's andrewfiala.com? Yes, Where that's people right. can find. And, and I, hope, I hope we can find uh, an, an, another, uh, another opportunity to talk more about this whole concept of tyranny and, and its historical aspects as well as, you know, what we can do as, as human beings going forward to perhaps uh, not be subjected to tyrants as much as we have been in the past. Do you have any, we have got about uh, two or three minutes left. Do you have any closing thoughts that you would want to share with us? Well, you know, Johanna, thank you again for having me on. And um, I'm, I'm a philosophy professor, a professor of the humanities. And there's a lot of people who wonder, what's the point of studying philosophy in the humanities? And I would argue that's part of the solution to our problems. You know, you mentioned earlier, I argue, look in the mirror, right? We need to take stock of our lives. We need to learn from the history of literature and, and art and philosophy, and we need to think more carefully about our values. And I think often in our culture, we tend to be thoughtless. Um, actually, the whole world. <laughs> it's not just us, but that's a common human failing. We do better when we think more carefully and when we, uh, when we take that gander in the mirror and realize how flawed we all are. And it, it takes a lot of work to be good, and no one is. <laughs> it's always tomorrow, there's another day. We have to try to do better. I would I would take a slight difference to that. Uh, uh, I think I think I think we all are basically good, but we don't always act like we are. Ah, yeah, we're not perfect, you know. Yeah, always, we're not perfect. We're, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, 
and and that and that might be wishful thinking on my part. I don't know. I I tend I tend to come down on the optimistic side of things, well, as no, you can probably tell. I do too. I'm an educator, and I you know there's a new crop of students every semester, and I believe that each one of those students can learn, and each one of those students can improve themselves. Um, you know, it it takes a little effort though. What have you learned from from your students about about how do they view the situation in Ukraine? You, you know, Johanna, young people are 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 despondent. They're they're freaked out about the world. There's you know, climate change is is looking grim. Uh, we just came out of a pandemic with isolation. The political dysfunction in our own society is is severe, and now there's a war in Europe. You know, 19 to 20 year olds are are kind of freaked out. So, you know, one one thing I think we can all do is offer them a bit of hope. You know that um, you know these are these are dark times, but they're not the worst of times yet. <laughs> and they 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 will get darker if we give up hope. But we all need to have hope, and especially the youth. Right? That how sad that is for a 19 year old to 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 be hopeless. Um, that, you know, we need to give them. We need to support young people and, and make help them believe that the world can become a better place. You know, I'm always torn between. Obviously, we want everyone, especially the young people. And you know, I'm a mother and a grandmother. We want our kids and grandkids to grow up in peace. And at the same time, I don't think I would be able to appreciate peace as and 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 also the situation that's happening with refugees as much as I do if my parents and grandparents hadn't been refugees themselves um and and we hadn't been exposed to that you know growing up as as kids so uh, i think the value of what you're doing and teaching history and teaching philosophy and talking about the past and what and how it can how it continues to apply to us now and in the future is very very important yeah yeah thank you i agree okay looks like we're starting to be joined by our next guest You are listening to Wild Oak Living. This is Johanna Wild Oak. And the interview you just heard was an interview that I recorded with philosophy professor Andrew Fiala in April of this year. And I wanted to share it with you again because it's interesting to listen to some of his thoughts that he expressed at the beginning of the war in, in Ukraine and now with the, the benefit, of, well, maybe not the benefit is the wrong word here, now with the perspective of several more months, uh, it's interesting to look back at some of those thoughts. And um, I hope you found this this rebroadcast interesting, whether you've heard it before or not. You are listening, as I said, to Wild Oak Living. This is Johanna Wild Oak, and this program comes to you every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. It is all about living sustainably in building community in Mendocino County and beyond. Today we are sort of on a philosophic uh, bend, I guess you could call it, and uh as a sort of a part two of my uh, sharing information with you about uh, Andrew Fiala and some of his thoughts, I did some more research and um, I found a couple of commentaries that he recorded uh, at, a, at another public radio station in Central Valley because as I think I shared earlier, 
Professor Fiala is a professor of philosophy and director of the Ethics Center at Fresno State. By the way, I think I mentioned it in the in the interview I just played, but if you would like to hear more f or read more by him, he has both videos and audio and PowerPoint presentations and uh, articles, both public and scholarly. You can go to his website. It's andrewfiala.com, Andrew, F-I-A-L-A, fiala.com. But uh, what I found on the web is something, uh, he did a series of commentaries for uh, KVPR, which is the uh, Central California radio station. And these are just short little things. They're about two to three minutes long. And and there's, there's three commentaries there that I wanted to share with you because I, I found them interesting. They, um, they were recorded in 2014 and 2015, it says here. Um, the first one is called uh, uh, Time to Reconnect with Libertarian Ideals. And I'm just going to share this with you. And uh, these are the thoughts of Professor Andrew Fiala. Most Americans appear to think that the U.S. is in decline. A recent Wall Street Journal poll concluded that 76% of adults think that their kids will be worse off than they are. A leading pundit, the political scientist Francis Fukuyama recently published an article with the simple title, America in Decay. There are a lot of bad things going on, riots, wars, plagues, and droughts. And it often seems that our politicians are busy fiddling while Rome burns or the ice caps melt. This can appear to be downright biblical. And yes, some blame our ills on the demise of organized religion. Others will claim the reverse that religious fanaticism is still a problem to be overcome. And therein lies the problem. One person's portent of decline can be another person's harbinger of progress. That's why we should be careful in making such global historical pronouncements. Indeed, Fukuyama, who says that America is in decay, should know better. He once famously pronounced that with the end of the Cold War, history had ended. But a lot has happened since 1989. If history teaches us anything, it's that we ought to avoid prophetic declarations about history. There is no fixed point of reference from which we could make grand historical judgments. Grand historical narratives that celebrate the triumph of one group or idea will appear callous and ridiculous from another point of view. Nomadic hunter-gatherers must have viewed the agricultural revolution as insane. The triumph of Roman civilization was a disaster for the Celts. The Luddites opposed the Industrial Revolution. The hardy American pioneers were viewed by Native Americans as conquering barbarians. The winners write the history, and the losers grouse. The supposed decay of American values appears so only from a limited vantage point. The world is much better now for women, non-whites, and homosexuals than it was in the 19th century. Our climate is heating up, but we can travel easily to the far reaches of the globe. Crime rates have fallen, but our prisons are full. Are we better off? The question of whether we expect our children to be better is even harder to answer. One thing is certain. When our children arrive in the future, their lives will be different. They will look at us and our old-fashioned values the same way that we look at the strange values of the Romans, Celts, Luddites, and pioneers. Better or worse? Well, that all depends on your point of view. We may not like the way things turn out for our children or their weird new values, but the future belongs to them, not to us. For the moral is, 
This is Andrew Fiala. That was a short commentary Andrew Fiala recorded, if you can believe it, in December of 2014. That is a long time ago, and yet it seems like just today, doesn't it? Um, that's why I, I chose to play these commentaries for you as, as a follow-on to the interview with Andrew Fiala that I just played for you, because they seem somehow timed and timeless at the same time. And uh, some of the issues that are discussed in these commentaries are, are, are very topical and current today. So I'm going to play two more of these short uh commentaries one of them is about is is titled good moral the next one that's coming up is titled good moral hygiene is the remedy for rotten ideas and in this commentary he asks do bad ideas and evil ideology spread like a disease in this edition of the moral is fresno state philosophy professor andrew fiala uh okay well anyway let's let's rather than my reading this let's just listen to it Okay, so here we go. We tend to fear that immoral behavior is contagious. Some fear that terrorism and radical ideology spread like a disease. But is this really true? Are evil ideas really contagious? Some idiots do commit copycat crimes. And an old saying holds that one rotten apple spoils the bunch. But human beings are not fruit. The vast majority of us are reasonable beings not seduced by the pernicious ideologies of the rotten apples. Our bodies have natural resistance to disease, and our souls have a natural resistance to vice and to bad ideas. Good nutrition and proper hygiene help to prevent the spread of disease. Morality and reason work in much the same way. The roots of our ideological immune system are tightly woven into our social and psychological DNA. Most of the time, most people are decent, kind, and reasonable. Moral vaccines and rational booster shots also help. Education, philosophy, and science can provide us with extra resistance to ideological corruption. A daily regimen of moral and mental hygiene is essential for ethical fitness. Take time to be mindful, build nurturing relationships, avoid corrupting influences, cynical associates, violent media, racist ideology, sexist imagery, and the like. And above all, seek the truth. Some worry that this is not enough, perhaps thinking that evil is so insidious and powerful that it cannot be resisted. But to think this way is to already admit defeat. Good ideas, if they are really good, are obvious, reasonable, and desirable. There is no guarantee, of course, that good ideas triumph every time. But in the long run, unlike apples in a barrel, human beings have the capacity to understand the good, choose the reasonable, and resist corrupt ideologies. Some worry that any new idea is evil. Conservative defenders of tradition view new ideas as dangerous contagions to be resisted and eliminated. But dumb and dangerous ideologies can't overwhelm good sense. Ideas are not viruses that infect us against our will. Rather, good ideas catch on because we understand their value. And bad ideas die when they are exposed as evil and untrue. The difficulty is, however, that when it comes to ideas, there is more than one kind. Even apples come in various colors. There are also pears, peaches, and persimmons. Some of our fear of ideological corruption is actually a fear of variety. We don't want our apples contaminated by the apricots and avocados. 
Some fruit is really rotten and ought to be thrown out. Any ideology that calls for murder and mayhem should be rejected, but in throwing out the bad, we should not discard the merely different. One important component of physical, moral, and mental fitness is a balanced diet. Good fruit comes in many flavors, and one rotten apple rarely spoils the whole barrel. For The Moral Is, this is Andrew Fiala. That was um, this. You're listening to Wild Duck Living, and that was another comment by philosophy professor Andrew Fiala. Again, in, interesting to know that this was recorded. I think 2014. Still pretty current. Um, and on that note, uh, he also recorded a commentary about uh, climate change and planetary warming in 2013. And in his comment, he talks about some some ideas that are. Again, very topical, and it's hard to believe that 10 years have have gone by. Almost 10 years have gone by since he recorded this, and yet some of these things are, are things that uh, we are still talking about today. So let's have a listen to this. President Obama recently announced a new initiative on climate change. But will we be able to address climate change in time to prevent the worst that is predicted? I doubt it. Decades of dithering about global warming do not inspire hope. In the spring of 2013, the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere hit a new high of 400 parts per million. This concentration has not been seen on Earth for two and a half million years, when the Earth was three degrees centigrade warmer than it is today. CO2 concentrations are rising, and there is no concrete plan to slow things down. Like Nero, we're fiddling while Rome burns. But why not fiddle? It's rational to enjoy yourself today and ignore the risk of catastrophic future harm. Our brains are programmed by evolution to maximize our own short-term happiness. A few of us may make self-sacrificial choices, and some do prepare for their children's futures, but in general, we maximize our own self-interest in the near to mid-future. We simply have no motivation to scrimp today for the well-being of unborn generations. We are not programmed to take collective action to prevent long-term and speculative risks. Climate-friendly behavior can look positively irrational. Individuals can bike to work or avoid using the air conditioning, for example. But why should I sacrifice my short-term happiness when no one else does? What's the point of biking to work if everyone else is driving? What's the point of dialing back the AC when the folks next door are blasting theirs? That sort of thinking is connected to a problem that philosophers call the prisoner's dilemma. It turns out that if we suspect others of being self-interested, we won't cooperate, and we will each choose to pursue our own self-interest. But when everyone pursues their own self-interest, we end up with worse outcomes. The result is tragedy. Climate change requires massive cooperation at the global and corporate level. But we don't trust each other. We won't sacrifice our short-term happiness, and we simply don't plan for the distant future. Affluent Americans will be able to surf the waves of climate change, but the poor will not. And here again is the problem. In a hot, crowded future, poor people will want to blast the AC and drive big cars, and affluent people will not willingly give up what we've got. The hotter it gets, the worse the problem may become. I hope some political genius can solve this difficulty. But the future looks bleak. The mercury is rising. And while we should be tuning up our bikes, 
most of us are tuning up our fiddles. For The Moral Is, this is Andrew Fiala. That was another commentary recorded in 2013, as you probably guessed, because he mentioned President Obama by Andrew Fiala, which you can find. You can find all of these commentaries. Uh, there's, I think, a couple dozen of them on the uh, website kvpr.org, or just search for Andrew Fiala, KVPR. Um, Fiala is spelled F-I-A-L-A. You are listening to Wild Oak Living. This is Johanna Wild Oak. I bring you this program every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. here on KZYX and Z Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. The program is all about sustainable living and developing, uh, helping to develop community. And um, I'm going to transition in a moment to the second topic that I have lined up for this program, and that is some thoughts on gratefulness by a monk, uh, David Steindl Rost, um, some really wonderful, uh, inspiring and uplifting thoughts uh, after some of the more depressing thoughts about tyrants. But, uh, it's, it's all about gratefulness and happiness and sort of to transition, transition ourselves into that. I have one more of, of, um, Andrew Fiala's commentary. This is the last one I'm going to play. And this, this, in this commentary, he asks the question, do you deserve to be happy? And that's going to transition us then to our discussion about gratefulness and David Steindl Rust. So here's Andrew Fiala answering the question, do we deserve to be happy? You're listening to Valley Edition. Here's a question for you. Do you deserve to be happy? This segment of our commentary series, The Moral Is, Fresno State philosophy professor Dr. Andrew Fiala discusses the pursuit of happiness and the question of what we ought to do to be worthy of happiness. Scientists have developed a variety of ways to measure happiness, including measures of positive attitude, social networks, physical health, and so on. Using these measures, the World Happiness Report recently concluded that citizens of northern European countries are the happiest. A related Gallup poll found that Midwestern American states are happier than Southern states. I wonder, however, whether people in Nebraska or the Netherlands deserve to be happier than those in West Virginia or Syria. Our culture views the pursuit of happiness as an inalienable right. If that's true, then Syrians deserve to be as happy as North Dakotans. But does each person really deserve to be happy? Criminals don't deserve happiness. Or do they? and those who deserve to be happy, saints and heroes often fail to find happiness. The fact that morality does not guarantee happiness can leave us feeling, well, unhappy about morality. It's not fair that good people suffer while evil people thrive. This problem often seems to require a theological solution. Reward and punishment in the afterlife are thought to equalize the imbalance between goodness and happiness. But without appealing to the afterlife, we can argue that morality makes happiness more likely. Moral habits provide social, emotional, and intellectual stability. Morality helps us avoid guilt. And those who are virtuous can safely say they deserve the happiness they enjoy. The link between morality and happiness is as old as Aristotle, who told us 2,500 years ago that virtuous activity was the key to well-being. However, unlike today's scientists who study happiness, Aristotle also asked whether we deserve to be happy. To pursue happiness without morality is to put the psychological cart before the moral horse. 
a single-minded pursuit of happiness will often fail to achieve its goal. The direct pursuit of happiness often leads to moral collapse in egoism and narrowly focused hedonism. Ethics is not about making ourselves happy. It's about making ourselves worthy of happiness. Happiness should properly result from virtuous activities done for their own sake. We don't love our neighbors so that we can be happy. That's not love. But when we love others for their own sake, we find happiness. Some view morality and happiness as absolutely opposed, as if good people have to stoically do their duty without any joy. But virtue does not demand misery. It's okay to enjoy loving your neighbor or to be proud of your virtues. Nonetheless, the focus of morality cannot simply be self-satisfaction. There are some things we ought to do, even though they do not result in our own happiness. Happiness may follow morality, but the reward is usually only found when it's not directly intended. So, while we are busily pursuing happiness, we ought to consider whether we are worthy of the happiness we seek. We also should develop compassion for those who remain unhappy, despite the fact that they've done nothing to deserve their misfortune. For The Moral Is, this is Andrew Fiala. And that was the final in the series of comments that I just shared with you by philosopher Andrew Fiala. He's at Fresno State University. And you can find lots more information about him and by him by just simply uh, putting Andrew Fiala into your favorite search engine, F-I-A-L-A. You're listening to Wild Oak Living. This is Johanna Wild Oak. Um, I'm, I'm in the studio here in the MCOE studio in Ukiah, California, and I'm doing a live program sharing with you some, some pre-recorded materials that inspired me in the last few days. Um, we're going to transition now from talking about, uh, philosophy with, uh, philosophy professor Andrew Fiala and hearing some of his thoughts to talking about gratefulness. Uh, gratefulness is a, is a concept that has inspired me for a long time. Uh, there are so many um, facets to this, but rather than me talking about it or, or sharing my thoughts about it, I would like to have you listen to some thoughts by uh, the person that I think is probably the most um, um, the most premier source of thoughts on gratefulness on the planet right now and has been for a very long time. He has been around since 1926, if you can believe it. So he's almost, he's almost a hundred years old, which is really wonderful. And he's still with us. David Steindl Rost. He is a, um, a monk and he does many things. Uh, he travels the world and, and, and gives talks and, and you can find lots of presentations and thoughts and audios and videos about him and by him on YouTube. If you like, you can also go to a website called gratefulness.org where you can find many videos and audios and, and writings by him and about him. Gratefulness.org is, is a great resource, um, for, and I'll, t I'll talk about it a bit more, but in a moment, but first, I would like to share with you about a five-minute uh, audio clip that, that it's called A Good Day by David Steindl Rust. By the way, that's spelled S-T-E-I-N-D-L hyphen Rust, R-A-S-T. So St David Steindl Rust is his name, Dr. David Steindl, my brother David Steindl Rust. He's a monk. And this uh, audio, Good Day, then became a, a video um that a beautiful video that was made that you can find also on YouTube too if you want to look for it it's called a good day by 
David Steindl Rust. So let's listen to this, uh, and then we'll talk about uh, gratefulness some more when we come back. think this is just another day in your life? It's not just another day. It's the one day that is given to you today. It's given to you. It's a gift. It's the only gift that you have right now. And the only appropriate response is gratefulness. If you do nothing else but to cultivate that response to the great gift that this unique day is, if you learn to respond as if it were the first day in your life, and the very last day, then you will have spent this day very well. Begin by opening your eyes and be surprised that you have eyes you can open. That incredible array of colors that is constantly offered to us for pure enjoyment. Look at the sky. We so rarely look at the sky. We so rarely note how different it is from moment to moment with clouds coming and going. We just think of the weather. And even of the weather, we don't think of all the many nuances of weather. We just think of good weather and bad weather. This day, right now, is unique weather. Maybe a kind that will never exactly in that form come again. The formation of clouds in the sky will never be the same that is right now. Open your eyes, look at that. Look at the faces of people whom you meet. Each one has an incredible story behind their face story that you could never fully fathom. Not only their own story, but the story of their ancestors. We all go back so far. And in this present moment, on this day, all the people you meet, all that life from generations and from so many places all over the world, flows together and meets you here like a life-giving water if you only open your heart and drink. (laughs) 
your heart to the incredible gifts that civilization gives to us. You flip a switch and there is electric light. You turn a faucet and there is warm water and cold water and drinkable water. It's a gift that millions and millions in the world will never experience. So these are just a few of an enormous number of gifts to which we can open your heart. And so I wish you that you will open your heart to all these blessings and let them flow through you. That everyone whom you will meet on this day will be blessed by you. Just by your eyes, by your smile, by your touch, just by your presence. Let the gratefulness overflow into blessing all around you. And then it will really be a good day. don't want to talk after this. It's so moving and so powerful. You've just listened to uh, an audio clip called A Good Day by Brother David Steindl Rast, who is a monk. And uh, you can find out more about him by going to a website called gratefulness.org. This website has a lot of resources uh, about gratefulness, uh, interactive resources, things you can listen to, videos you can watch, audio you can listen to, and you can also find out much more information about uh, Brother David Steindl Rust there. He has a fascinating history, as I said earlier. He's been here on this planet since 1926, and he's still here, as far as I know. Uh, and I hope he continues to share his wisdom with us for a long time to come. This is Johanna Wildoak. I've been bringing you today a program uh, with a bit of a philosophical bend. Uh, my earlier guest, uh, Andrew Fiala, Professor of Philosophy, and now Brother Steindl Rust. I hope you've enjoyed this program. It comes to you every other Thursday from 9 until 10 a.m. Uh, if you would like to listen to previous editions of uh, Wild Oak Living or the many other wonderful public affairs programs on KZYX, just go to your favorite podcast application uh, and look for KZYX, or you can just simply type in podcast Wild Oak Living and you can find many previous editions of Wild Oak Living uh, in your favorite podcast application on your phone or on your computer or on your tablet. Um, and you can also go to uh, kzyx.org to find out more about KZYX and to support KZYX, this wonderful community radio station for Mendocino County and beyond. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.